Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start our episode today, this is just a reminder, History Hack does have a Patreon account and all of your donations are gratefully appreciated. There's lots of perks on there, secret groups on Facebook. Do get involved. We would love to see more of you. Enjoy the episode today. Hello and welcome down the pub. Oh my God, it's been so long. We have reconvened in the Mary Rose. Well, some of us have. Other people are on their way home to work and other people appear to have lives now and aren't here. Uh, first of all, will you please all be upstanding for the wonderful Judge Lockie. Lockie, how you doing? Yeah, good. Got my uh, got my wig and finery on, uh, especially for the judging role or something. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the, the mullet wig was quite appropriate, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, Lockie, you've been spanking all your money on books you don't have time to read. Is that right? Everyone so, knows that. Yeah. yeah no, um, just do what I do when anyone questions it and say, oh, but it was they were just a penny on Amazon and then £2.80 for the shipping. People believe you. It's mad. Yeah, I'm going to just sort of cross my fingers and hope they arrive when the girlfriend's out. That's that's usually... And then I can smuggle them into the to the shelves and nobody notice. And I hope she doesn't notice that you have a mini library of books on the history of rugby union. Oh, yeah, there's that. <laughs> I think she's expecting that. I mean, yeah, I kind of... I did become the club historian so I do need to do some work at some point yeah um, technically it's work right yeah yeah it's, it's more my rugby retirement that I'm planning for when I when I give up when I'm allowed to give up playing um but it's going to be it's going to be to hit the books wonderful uh we also have the fabulous hairy beast that is Josh Proven with us Josh how you doing uh trying to live up to the Trying to live up to the new to the new uh, sort of persona you've given me, Alex. Uh, <laughs> as the today is also the day is especially true of today because my my second book got released today. So, whoop, whoop. Oh, baby, and this is this is a book on the second Maratha Wars, isn't it? That is the one, the legendary one. Whenever I say it, I always think of that little turd Maratha that used to play for Chelsea um, and do no work. <laughs> And I always think of declaring war on him, which I'd quite like to. But congratulations on your book, baby. Thank you very much. I love, Mum. <laughs> I love that you've uh, done an interview for History Hack already on it. And mm. you made a demand about your cartoon. That Did you, I? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. I think, though, it's because you've got sunglasses on in all the others and you want them to match, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. You're basically on a mission to have enough to make your own calendar if you want history hack, aren't you? This is this this is the spurious uh, suggestion of Zach White, isn't it? White has been speaking to you about my <laughs> my ambitions to cover a wall with cartoons. Uh, yeah, he's not um, here tonight. He's off recording another episode and having a massive salt because we just did one about the history of human evolution, and he found out that velociraptors were actually the size of chickens and had feathers, and he had a massive fucking strop. Like, How did he not know that? I don't know, but he basically said that me and Matt Pope robbed him of his childhood. And oh, he bought he the Jurassic really quiet as a file. It's, yeah. a, it's all right. He still looks 12. His, his childhood continues. <laughs> oh, do you know what? On another recording today, he made a pop culture reference um, to walk like an Egyptian. And I was like, why do you occasionally do one? And they always from the 70s and 80s. Are you actually 55, Zach? Uh, just very, very we also had the lovely Charlie White with us, who is hunkered down uh, in an Airbnb, but she's got Prosecco, so all is right with the world. Yeah, it's all good down here in Winchester. So you're working, aren't you? Yeah, I'm back. I'm back to actually doing my day job of being a travelling showgirl chef. Tell you know, everyone where they can find you, because I'm going to go to the one in Brighton, because it sounds like so much fun. Yeah, please come and say hello. I host the Cake and Desserts Theatre at Foodies Festivals. So I go all around the country. I'm in Winchester this weekend. I'm going to be in Cambridge next weekend, which is even better because it's my hometown. Um, I'm going to be going to uh, London and Bristol and Bournemouth and Brighton and Chelmsford. I'm going all over. So go to foodiesfestival.com and check out the dates and come along and see me and talk to me about history. Or and she'll cake. give you cake. And I'll give you cake, yeah. Amazing. How can you, what an offer you cannot refuse. We've <laughs> uh, also got James with us. He's wearing a filler shirt. Are you feeling a little bit smart? Yay! Really made the final, James. <laughs> uh, a bit. I'm just happy I'm fully jab now and all the teaching stuff is sorted for September, so. Yeah, oh, you're basically hanging out of your ass after your second jab, aren't you? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Wonderful. Don't miss that at all. We've also got the lovely Chris Sams, who is basking in the glory of having had four figures he's into now for downloads for his episode on German cruiser warfare that aired on Monday. Hello. Hello. You're right. Yeah, I'm, I'm really still quite surprised by that, but no, it's, it's good. I'd be surprised, you idiot. It was good. You know what you're talking about. We gave you license to talk about the thing you're obsessed with. Why are you surprised that you managed to fill an hour talking about it? It's the first time anyone's let me talk about it. (laughs) Okay, moving on. Lockie went out and bought your book. People in America bought your book. I've had two messages from people saying that they found a copy of your book. Oh, cool. Yeah. Hopefully my my plans to retire by 50 are, are, are on their way then. Well, I've seen who you published with, so don't bank on it. Yeah. <laughs> check one day. I <laughs> wouldn't hold out too much hope. Oh, that's it for now. Uh, more people are coming. Uh, Beth stupidly offered to cover a late shift, and there's some other people with various excuses dropping in a bit later on. We've decided today to look for history's greatest scam. Are you ready for this, Lockie? Yeah, kind of. I, in my prep for this, I was tempted to go with um, what I think is a massive scam um, before I was named judge, of course, uh, which is bay leaves. Um, you know, that <laughs> thing that, you, that every single pasta sauce recipe says you need to include and it does fuck all for the flavour. They do nothing. They're little, 
the little placebos. Waste of time. Oh, that um, you fish out anyway. That's it. Okay. But that's my go. That's my go. So, um, <laughs> Charlie, do you concur as the chef in the room? All I would say is accidentally eat one and then tell me what you think of them. They are pungent bastards. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Okay, right. Oh, who should we start with? Let's start with, let's start with Chris, because I bet you anything Chris is going to stay in his very Germanic lane today. Is that right, Chris? Um, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Um, I decided that scams are all well and good for making money, but there are more noble causes. And what more noble than uh, fighting for your country? Uh, especially when you're no i'm not gonna say that <clears throat> so um you're gonna say especially when you're fighting britain no i was gonna say when your country's right well you've lost with Lockie straight away then haven't you <laughs> oh, i don't know yeah. keep an open mind and things like this <laughs> remember i'm damaged my mum my mum shut the garage door on my head when i was seven and then sent me to school it's fine um, <laughs> um so um, I'm going with uh, the Emden in August 1914. Um, the light cruiser was detached from uh, Von Spee's squadron to go and cause mischief amongst um, the uh, British uh, traffic in the Indian Ocean. And as they were cruising away, they noticed as they were going through the islands that there were lots of Japanese fishing boats. And because Emden had been on station in the Pacific for quite some time, she was well known. She was um, known as the white swan because she had sweeping lines. She was bright white. And so um, the first officer, Helmut von Marker, came up with this great idea to try and um, disguise the ship. So he fashioned a kind of fake funnel out of uh, canvas, uh, ropes, spare bits of flotsam and wood. So that now she had four funnels instead of three. Uh, so to the casual observer, she would look like um, HMS Yarmouth and um, so that they hoped that they could slip past patrols. And to a degree, it did work for quite some time. They managed to stop quite a few ships. Uh, they got 20 in total over um, three months action, um, often popping up the funnel. British merchantmen will look over and go, oh, that's all right. It's one of old crap. It's firing at us. But it's not so much the merchantmen that win that make the scam worth it. What really, the, the two, they, they actually involve, engage in two actions. The first one being on the 22nd of September, 1914. News reaches Madras in India that um, the Emden has been sunk by the Royal Navy. The officer, um, there's a giant party being held in the officer's mess to celebrate the sinking of this German raider, considering how much damage it had done already. Um, guards aren't really paying that much attention because there's no Germans anywhere near them for quite some time. And HMS Yarmouth pulls into harbour and then starts opening fire. Um, and they managed, they uh, fire off about 125 rounds. They fire at the Burma oil, oil drums, which they destroy five of them and destroy, oh, sorry, six of them and destroy 346,000 gallons of oil. Um, they also uh, sink one ship in the harbour a cause, uh, hang on, how many thousands of people? So like 20,000 um, 20, people to flee the city by train alone. The governor of the city flees. Uh, it takes him three days to come back. Um, and um, even then doesn't stay for long. The British then have to um, own up that they haven't sunk Emden. They don't know where she is. And the Royal Navy can't find her. Um, and they have to shut all shipping in the in, uh, along the Indian coastline um, and set up massive searchlights looking for her. 
she just gets got clean away. Um, the captain said, I have to try and read my writing here, but uh, I had this sharing in... get to this point. Yeah. <laughs> you can't read your own notes. I'm, I'm going to do it without the accent, but um, I had this well, sharing no, in... You have no Clive, you must do the accent. Uh, do you want it in, in sort of South London or um, German? Well, I think in honour of Clive, everyone's got to do a bit of a Cockney accent at some point in their pitch tonight. Uh, all right. Um, I had this shell in, uh, in view simply as a, as a demonstration to arouse interest and, um, among the Indian population. Are you doing uh, to you do? No, I'm trying to. It's just not coming out very well. Coming out like <laughs> Michael Caine instead. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Because <laughs> I work near the, in the Elephant and Castle, you just can't help it. Um, <laughs> I'm trying not to sound like my boss and swear every other word. Um, <laughs> and I got to uh, arouse interest among uh, the Indian population uh, to disturb English commerce and uh, to diminish English prestige. Um, it had such an effect on the local population that um, mothers were on, on apparently mothers would tell their turn the emden into kind of the boogeyman for naughty children and that if they didn't behave emden would come back and get them and i believe i've not been able to find too many references on this but the, locally the word emdina went into um the local dialect which means cunning uh in the same style as a fox um emden then went on she went to the chagos islands which were under british uh, control they had no idea that there was a war on. They managed to bluff their way into getting the British to help clean and fix their ship <laughs> before moving on. Um, on the 12th of October, he says, having shut his notebook with all the dates in them, 23rd of October, 27th of October. Come on, Chris, get this right. Um, they sailed into uh, Padang Harbour in British Malaya. Again, fourth funnel up. No one seemed to notice. Uh, she cruised right up to the Russian cruiser Zemchug and put two torpedoes in her and sank her. Um, then opened fire on all the mer um, massed merchant ships and then escaped before anyone could catch her and managed to get away to the blue, um, the deep blue without any real damage, but having upset the allies quite, quite a bit. Unfortunately, the fourth funnel didn't work all the time. Uh, at the, she, um, when HMS Yarmouth arrived at um, the Cocos Islands, um, the guy in, in charge of the wireless station had a telescope and had a closer look at the ship, at the unknown ship that arrived and very quickly got off an SOS, um, which the Germans failed to jam, saying SOS, uh, unknown vessel in harbour. And within two, three hours, HMS Sydney, HMAS Sydney had turned up and it was all over. But before that, it had to be just a simple act of ropes, canvas, something that um, several guys just whipped up one afternoon, managed to, confute, to throw at least 20 merchant ships and get them to cause quite a lot of damage to the Allied war effort for one afternoon's work and go get get into the local dialect. Chris, I'm with you on this one. The buggers, it's a brilliant scam. Did you not tell us also in your interview about another one where they were pretending to be a British ship and it backfired because the actual British ship was like, that's not us, the bastards, and realised yeah. what they were doing? Yeah, that was um, the Cap Trafalgar, which was off Trinidad in, near Brazil. Um, she... They rigged a fake funnel on her as well um, to pretend to be uh, the Carmania and, uh, because that was another ship that had, used to operate off South America. But what they didn't know was that Carmania was in Liverpool being refitted as an auxiliary and then on, um, was on its way back to South America when they got the, uh, a call saying that their ship had been spotted ahead 
They were like, but we're here. So they went to uh, Trinidad Island where they'd heard there were German merchant ships and had a battle with itself. Um, I forget who wrote the book, but I've got one over here called uh, The Ship That Sank Itself, um, which is um, the story of the sinking of Cap Trafalgar. Where is it? That's not, that's not the one where the two um, liners shoot the hell out of each other, is it? Yeah, that's the one. Is a Cunard liner, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's the one. By Colin Simpson, uh, if anybody would like to read about that fuckwittery. Uh, and I thought it was um, a really good effort and a really good start, Chris. Lockie, what say you? Well, I, I, the only thing I know about um, the Emden, really, besides what uh, we've let Chris say in um, various Down the Pub sessions, um, is... <laughs> you mean he's mentioned it before? <laughs> maybe, once or twice. Maybe, maybe once or twice. Um, is uh, just the, the the kind of Winston Churchill quote while all this was going on because Churchill was first Lord of the Admiralty at the time and he's getting quizzed on why this uh, this poxy little German ship was causing so much trouble in um, in the Indian Ocean. I think he referred to it as a cut flower, didn't he? Like like a cut flower. It looks very pretty, but actually has a very short lifespan, and that turned out to be more or less correct, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's about um, she went down early November. I've got the date off the top of my head. So she was um, out for about two and a half months, but she did a hell of a lot of damage for one light cruiser. Um, and she had quite a large force looking for her. German history dictates it should be the 9th of November. That's when everything happens, isn't it? <laughs> Something like that. Um, have a look, let me look it up. Ah, I've got... Um, um, Kaiser's nephew's... A better quote he wanted to share with us all from this escape aid, but he can't find it because he hid the book from his child. <laughs> it's disappeared. Who's also massively keen in slightly in, sterile, <laughs> <laughs> massively keen in German cruiser warfare. Yeah, um, things he can eat. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, I really like that. I thought that was a sound, uh, sound scam. Um, one that had consequences uh, as well. Good bit of trickery. Good bit of mischief, as you said. Um, bit of comedy value as well. Yeah, go chasing this ship. Governor running away from his post. Lots of disguises. Yeah, um, I like it. I wonder if we're going to get some more existential ones tonight, Lockie, um, oh, as well. Possible. Yeah, it's possible that someone might, might try and uh, float one of those in front of you. We've had two more people join us in the pub. We have Beth, who's just run home from work and is clearly not ready to give her pitch yet, are you? <laughs> no, well, I'm partly ready. How are you? Um, um, yeah, I'm good. Thanks. It's, uh, yeah, just looking forward to, uh, life getting back to normal. It's been a while and, uh, can't wait to come and see you in a couple of weeks as well. Yeah, with no restrictions on going out as well. Party time yeah. in London. Uh, we also have Merrin, who I'm hoping will come down for party time if she can walk. Merrin. Decided to take a flying dive off of her motorbike. Oh yeah, we don't mention the motorbike. We don't mention the motorbike. Um, I'm 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 fine. Yeah, great. <laughs> I'm I'm not entirely convinced, if I'm honest. Right, okay, James, you're just bar flying tonight, aren't you? Um, well, I do have an argument set up, which I can try. Go uh, on, then, give it a go. Yeah, it's not as prepped as I'd have liked it. Yeah. Uh, well, you are, to be fair to you, you have uh, been slightly bitch slapped around by your COVID jab, so we will forgive yeah. you. Yeah, because actually the choice I've gone for is actually the scam of buried treasure and the myth of buried treasure. Oh, in general? This... Yeah, because there's quite a few examples of it, but it's something that has consequences to this day. Uh, it's cost start... a lot of people. 
sorry, Chris has just pointed out in the chat that it indeed was sunk on the November locking. Um, I have the skills to pay the bills, clearly. Or just Germans are predictable in when they do. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, James. Very yeah. true. Yeah, because this is one I thought of a few weeks ago, thanks to Dr. Rebecca Simon. Um, but yeah, it starts off with Captain Kidd. And obviously, when we think of pirates, we think of how they look like Jack Sparrow. And the one thing is buried treasure. That's what pirates are known for. But point is, they didn't necessarily leave hordes of riches and jewels hidden throughout the world. Gold and jewels, they're heavy. Ships have to sail long distances at high speeds. And when they rob ships, they're interested in commodities such as spice, silks, alcohol and medicine and food. So how did this scam come about? So we have to talk about Captain William Kidd. He was a privateer and he caused a lot of damage, especially in the East Indies. And in the end, he was hunted down because the Mughals were angry about the loss of their goods. Now, around this time, they told the English they'd got to capture him. And he was trying to avoid this, especially as he had a letter of mark. So he, when he needed help and refuge, he sent word to his friend in New York, the Earl of Bellamont, to, who offered him safety. Unfortunately, Bellamont had already agreed to turn him over to the English because he didn't want to be associated with a pirate. However, he heard from an acquaintance of Kidd that Kidd's prizes totaled over £10,000 worth of gold and goods. However, upon his capture, no evidence of this was found. Rumours from Kidd himself and others grew, and they were helped by letters written by the Lord Justice in England from the East India Company that he'd sailed to America with his treasure and basically buried it. Bellamont himself later denied it, despite Kidd sending Bellamont's wife several thousand pounds worth of jewels. Uh, this ended up causing a lot of interest in piracy, especially, and also the myth of buried treasure. Many investigations from 1699 to 1700 did nothing, and even after his death, the rumoured buried treasure was for over three years. Now, the idea that a cord of wealth somewhere in the world available for taking has inspired people for generations since. There's rumours that went to the 19th century about his treasure. Inventory lists emerged with gold dust, gold bars, gold, silver coins, precious stones. And people keep searching for this. And then you have cases like Blackbeard. Blackbeard's treasure was never found and he supposedly buried it and didn't tell anyone where. And people have been searching for these treasures for years. And it goes on to these days, examples of people burying treasures. The, the Lima, the lost treasures of Lima were supposedly buried, but was used in an escape. Treasure maps, even for kids stuff has appeared. And it was up to the 1950s, even the British Museum led expeditions until they managed to prove the, maxi the uh, maps were a hoax. And this continues to this day. People think, oh, there's lots of buried treasure out there. We just need to find it. And you get a lot of metal detectorists and night hawks searching. And some people do get lucky. Some people find hordes. But most of the time, most people end up bloody broke trying to search for this. And it's even worse with shipwrecks. And to put in a Titanic example, because I know you like your Titanic, 
I think they will try to open one of the safes of the Titanic because they think the um, jewels and stuff were still on board. And then they raised it, uh, the safe, and they opened it and it was empty. But this is something, and this buried treasure myth is something that keeps inspiring people, but most people just end up broke. So for me, that's the biggest scam because you get TV shows, you get just people making money off it, and it's just ongoing. James, are you taking your Titanic reference from the film? No. Um, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, I know you are. <laughs> Bill Paxton bought a safe up and there was nothing in it. No, right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. So already we've got a little bit more existential, haven't we? The scam of buried treasure has led many to ruin Lockie. What do you think? So I'm, I'm now kind of considering how we might define a scam. Yeah. Because I, and, and, and a quick little question on Google asking for a definition tells me that it's a dishonest scheme um, or a fraud. And to me, a scam is something where someone stands to gain personally from perpetrating it. Um, so uh, what? Uh, there's another word for something which is a mistaken belief, uh, especially one based on unsound arguments, and that's fallacy. So I'm now I'm now thinking about sort of treasure hunting and and that kind of thing as as, as a fallacy rather than a, a scam. That said, I like this. I I, I like this idea of um, you, 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 and how many examples do you want of a of a of a scheme or an idea which ends up being just wrong. You know, we've got the old Spitfires in Burma and someone's still looking for a, a train load of Nazi gold in a tunnel somewhere in Poland or something like that. Um, uh, and I'm kind of minded to, to Indiana Jones really in the last crusade where he says X never, ever marks the spot. Um, and then so I, don't, I, like, I, like, I like the idea. I like the, the kind of thinking around the subject and, and, and what we've come out with. So this is so this is good. Um, I think maybe kind of in strict definition terms, we're, we're possibly not on the mark, but it's still a good idea. It is it's always, always fun talking about buried treasure anyway. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it is. I mean, there are worse things to do with your life than spend it with a well, wandering up and down a beach in North Carolina looking for yeah, I mean, treasure as well. It's just unfortunate that for some reason kids, I think it's in the trial records or something, happened to be the only guy who ever said, oh, I buried it somewhere. And then everybody thought, oh, wow, what a brilliant idea, even though very people very rarely did it. I reckon every single one of us should change our will so that it's, uh, <laughs> I hope no one finds my buried treasure. Yeah. Just so that uh, people can, it'll be like that prank um, mm -hmm. at school where on your last day you get three sheep and you spray paint them with numbers one, two and four and then laugh your head off while they run around looking for number three. Fucking like elaborate yeah. version. <laughs> Massive potential in East Anglia, Meryn. So much fun you can have with that. Take heart, though. Take heart, because there are actual documented finds of treasure ships. So it's it's possible to actually find treasure, like the Ato ship, which Mel Fisher found, and stuff like that, which is. You know, that, that that rewarded some pretty hefty dividends when they found that thing. Yeah, I mean, so. and if you're willing to steal the Declaration of Independence like Nicolas Cage, then you <laughs> might find it the other way, right? Can, can we have an episode about the national treasure and why it could have 
it, it was all unnecessary. Yes, <laughs> the entire we movie. Can. <laughs> to, to be fair, Josh, you mentioned the dividends of finding some of these treasures yeah. where possible. Yeah. But they don't tell you how much they've spent looking for those treasures. <laughs> and usually it's a. The deal is it was like a joint stock corporation set up by Mel Fisher, and he had investors helping him fund his frankly ridiculous lifelong search for the Spanish treasure ship Nuestra Señora de la Tosha. And eventually he did find it. And those investors got, I forget the actual number of the check that they got because they invested for so long, but it was ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. So, but that's part of the scam. Like <laughs> they, they could have like, ended up with absolutely F all. <laughs> well, of course that is the risk because who is the scammer in this case? The scammer is the legend, mm. the faceless, the faceless idea. <laughs> The thing is, I am a someone that loves that shipwrecks and yeah. all these treasure stories as well. So, who's really the one being scammed? I know. <laughs> Indeed. Right, we have another new addition. Heather's home from work and Heather's home from work by the hairdresser with her new buzz cut and colour do. Looking very swish. Thank you. Feel better? Feel less sweaty now? I know you don't like heat and I know it's really muggy and disgusting in Ohio. Do you feel better now you're basically bald? Yes. Excellent. How are you doing anyway, apart from work and the usual crap? That's pretty much it. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. But how many days is it now till you come to England for the Great War Group Conference? Uh, let's see. I think it's 96. 96 days. Every time you say that, me and Beth go, yay! Oh, shit, we've got so much to do. So, yeah, it terrifies us. Every we time. always have far too much to do, Alex. We yeah. need to stop saying yes to things. Yeah, we do. We need to, we, there's a book, apparently, I saw it on Amazon, as if I need any more books. It's just called The Art of Saying No. So will I be expecting a fourth book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm now using Heather as a mule for American books because I've discovered that when AB Books want to charge you 30-odd pounds for postage, that they're just making a profit off of you. Uh, and if I send it to Heather, it costs a third of what it costs to post it. So, Heather's my new book mule, and I am Nikolai's book mule. It's all getting very incestuous now with the book muling, um, but it's because none of us have any self-control. Uh, speaking of self-control, Lockie's just poured an amazing looking gin and tonic, I'm just staring at it now. What gin have you got? This is standard Tanqueray. Um, mm -hmm. This is, this is yeah, pouring gin, I suppose. Uh, nice uh, Mediterranean tonic water from Fever Tree. And a Death Star. I've got the Death Star ice moulds uh, oh, as well. Um, I think yeah, Chris, got a boner. Yeah, like, like that. <laughs> I've got like got the Millennium. Do I show you the Millennium Falcon ones? I've got as well, and I've got Darth Vader heads. Yeah. Slightly awesome. Another essential Amazon purchase, I'm guessing. <laughs> uh, presents, I think. I think I've got them. Excellent. All the excuses in the world. Right. Okay. Let's go to someone else. Who? What have we had so far? We've had two guys. So let's have a girl next. Let's go. Merrin, you ready? Um, I have a chicken problem. <laughs> um, no, I have a chicken problem in about four and a half minutes. Okay. Let's go to Charlie, who doesn't have a chicken problem. <laughs> But I'm then I'm free. I'm hoping that Charlie doesn't have a chicken problem in her Airbnb. No, She's but... looking around as if she might find one. Well, it's not my gaff. I, mean, I don't know if there are chickens here. There might yeah. be. I haven't checked under the bed. 
Um, are, we, are we strolling into a cock joke situation here? Or, yeah, always. Or... <laughs> We're always uh, five seconds away from a cock Okay, joke. I walked into that, didn't I? I, yeah. th- I thought, we were, thought we were keeping it clean. I'm disappointed. disappointed. I don't know. Charlie might have fresh eggs on hand for her baking, so... I don't think pet chicken round with her. It would would save me getting eggs if I had a pet chicken I could take round. That might be it. Or a portable cock. (laughs) (laughs) And there it is. Um, (laughs) Can you imagine the the pressure on that poor chicken if you had a pet chicken? Come on, I need two more eggs. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. We have a festival tomorrow. Get laying. There'd be a lot of lot of pressure on one little hen. I don't think I could. Don't think I could do that. Um, but speaking of pressure, uh, <laughs> I'm going to stay in my lane because I'm running around, and I thought, what gives me an excuse to take a whole load of books and notebooks in my case to my Airbnb? So I'm going to talk to you today about the Treaty of Dover and why I think it was history's greatest scam. So a little bit of background. We need to talk about what was the Treaty of Dover? No, what was the Treaty of Dover really? And what on earth was Charles II thinking? So these these are the elements of the scam. So the Treaty of Dover was concluded between Charles II of England and Louis XIV of France, who's his cousin and an absolute dude obviously. Um, The secret treaty of Dover, notice that little extra word there, was potentially the most scandalous treaty ever negotiated by an English monarch, because in return for a rather substantial chunk of money, Charles agreed to become a Roman Catholic, King of England. This is not, this is not the kind of thing that, that happens. This is kind of massive. In addition to this, Charles agreed that he would work towards the reconversion of the English nation. And just think back, this is roundabout now, we're talking end of the 1660s. This is starting to bubble away 1669. So we've already had a civil war. We've had, we've had Elizabeth uh, the first, we've had Bloody Mary Tudor, we've had the, the Reformation and Henry and Thomas Cromwell, like smashing up all the monasteries. So we've been through some shit, like 100 years worth of shit we've been through. And he's talking about reconverting the entire nation. In the treaty as well, Louis XIV said that he would provide a French army, should they be needed, to put down the English people. This is all signed and sealed and delivered between King Charles II and King Louis XIV. What Charles was going to give Louis other than his immortal soul and the souls of the English people, which was important to Louis. We need to we need to stress that Louis XIV is he has everything and actually meddling with the salvation of people is that kind of turns him on. So he likes that. But also, in addition to this, what um, Charles is promising to do is to throw away an existing treaty called the Triple Alliance between us and the Dutch and Swedish, and to join the French in an offensive um, war against the Dutch. Why do we want to fight the Dutch? Trade. That's it. It's dead simple. No other reason. They, they control the seas. 
Louis has noticed that everything that France imports has to go on a boat, a ship, sorry, that uh, is Dutch owned. So there is money in everything that comes into France going into the, um, the Dutch pockets and Louis does not want that to happen. So let's get rid of the Dutch. It's also beneficial to us. We fought them twice already, once under Cromwell and once in the mid 1660s. And we got our asses spanked and it ended up with the flagship, the Royal Charles being dragged away down to Holland and they still got it. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a big thing to do, but Louis wants to attack on land and we're going to give him a load of troops to go and attack on land. And we're going to support from the sea as well with our Navy. Had this treaty actually been implemented successfully, it would have probably meant the end of rule by Parliament because Charles would have had enough money from Louis to rule alone as an absolute monarch like Louis. It would have been the end of the Church of England. Um, It would have put us in league with one of Europe's big powers, the other power at the time, is Spain. France and Spain hate each other. That's all you need to know about um, foreign policy in the 17th century. They hate each other. France wants to take over Spain when the King of Spain dies because Louis has married a French queen, um, sorry, a Spanish queen. So they hate each other. It's pretty easy to to figure out the balance of power there. It would have been, um, I mean, on an unprecedented scale, the English would have come to govern not only North America, because they would have taken all the Dutch provinces there as well, but also the greater part of Central and Southern America as well. So this is a huge, huge deal on a treaty. Now, this part of the deal, the Catholic bit, is secret. Everything else is out in the open. We are going to be joining France in a war against the Dutch. But this is where it turns into a scam for me, is that you never really know what Charles II is thinking and what he's up to. So it all starts bubbling away. Like I said, 1668, 1669, he writes to his sister at the French court and he says, there is, oh, sorry, there's all reason in the world to join profit with honour when it may be done honestly. (laughs) Okay, because he's a wide boy. He is an absolute wide boy. Um, Clive tribute ticked off. Well this done. This is the Clive Clive tribute. In addition to this, whenever he's he he writes to his sister backwards and forwards, but whenever he sends an emissary over to France to discuss the treaty, he sends one of his white boys. He sends the Earl of Rochester, who he's just let out of the tower for dueling. He's not taking any of this seriously. He is having an absolute laugh, and this is where he starts to to scam Louis. Where Charles starts to scam Louis is over money, because Louis says, we need you to um, hold off on announcing your conversion until we go to war. We announce the war. We go to war. That's successful. Your people love you so much that you can say, oh, by the way, everybody, I'm a Catholic. But Charles has staged this whole big thing by gathering his most loyal Catholic ministers and telling them at the beginning of 1669, guys, I can't do this anymore. I cannot pretend that I'm not Catholic. He's got tears in his eyes. This is um, taken from James II's memoirs written in hindsight. So we don't really know how much of this is true. But he says, I have to do this. I can't I can't lie anymore. I have to come out as a Catholic. Um And Louis says to him, no, no, dude, dude, hold off. We need to go to war first. 
then you can tell people you're Catholic. If you tell your people you're Catholic now, they're going to cut your head off. So sit tight, hold on to your soul, you'll be fine. And Charles says, look, Louis, seriously, look, Louis, mate, seriously, like, I can't, I can't lie anymore. But I tell you what would ease my soul is a little bit more money. And so Louis says, okay, money, he makes it rain. He absolutely makes it rain. And Charles sits there having a giggle, holding off on going to war. We don't want to go to war. It's expensive. And he's getting money from Louis because he says, look, I've got to tell everybody. I've got to tell everyone I'm Catholic. This has to happen. He asks Louis, I've got, I've got this written down here. He asks Louis for one million pounds up front and then 600,000 a year to pay for the troops and the Navy and the ships that have to be built here and all of this stuff. So he is just taking coin after coin from Louis. And this goes backwards and forwards for months and months and months. It goes through three separate drafts, backwards and forwards. Eventually it gets signed in um, May of 1670 when Charles's sister comes over to, to do all of it very, very quietly. Louis is paying a hell of a lot of money to Charles for his for use of his army. Where it then becomes even more of a scam is that you may you may or may not know this, but Charles never came out as a Catholic. He did do away with Parliament for the last few years of his reign. So he did actually manage to be an absolute monarch for a few years. The only reason a monarch has Parliament is to vote them money. So he's now got the means to get rid of the pain in his ass, the killers of his father, um, through French money for a promise that he's made that he never actually does until he's on his deathbed. The French and English war against the Dutch is, is a big mess. It's where um, they flood Amsterdam to stop the French coming in. And, you know, it's it, that's a whole other, whole other kettle of fish. But it's the treaty that I think is the big scam because Charles took Louis for everything he was worth. He also took his people for everything they were worth because if this had come out um, that he was promising to do this, it would have been war straight out. And that's why only a few of his ministers knew about the real treaty. One of the people who knew about it was a Catholic um, minister of his, his treasurer, Lord Clifford, who eventually had to, had to resign his post. Four years later, in 1674, the Test Act meant that all ministers holding public office had to re- had to renounce transubstantiation. So they had to say, I am not a Catholic publicly. And he couldn't do it. And he resigned his post. He then went home. He married off his two daughters and he hung himself from his bedpost with his cravat. Um, he had one of the only signed copies of the treaty and it was in his desk. And it was not found for another 100 years. There are no official copies of this um, filed. Uh, there's a copy in France. There's the copy that Clifford had that sold at Sotheby's in the 80s. But it was completely buried. Now, why do I, I think it's a scam because I think Charles was after money and I think he played everybody like a fiddle. But no one can agree because no one really knows what he was up to. But he was up to something because he converted on his deathbed. And I think that that was his final punchline in this particular joke, the Treaty of Dover. Thank you. Politicians were going to come up at least somewhere tonight, weren't they, Lockie? 
Yeah, I, I kind of feel like the um, the deathbed conversion is almost like when you wave your hands in someone's face right in front of their eyes and and say, "Not touching, can't get mad." Yeah, like, I converted. I converted. You can't get mad. What do I know about um, the Treaty of Dover and the war against the Dutch? I know we got a good beer out of it. Um, <laughs> Adnam's broadside is named after the Battle of Soul Bay, which is um, oh nice, which is part of this. Um, but no, apart from that, I kind of picture Charles almost like Scrooge McDuck um, swimming through piles of French gold uh, in this in this scenario, and um, possibly with a hint of Doctor Evil with the kind of one <laughs> million pounds. Um, but I like it. I think it's it's quite a good money spinner i don't believe he you know made any serious moves to convert the the population to catholicism i think you probably remembered what happened to his dad um for really upsetting parliament um yeah sounds like a decent scam to me personal benefit i think it's all right and a whole yeah a whole monarchy at risk i mean if he'd if if you'd had to cut off another king's head we would never have had another king no, indeed. Brilliant. Okay, who should we move on to next? Got from the angle Chris is sitting at, I looked up suddenly and it just looked like he had his bare ass out on camera. <laughs> <laughs> really disturbing. It's not. His, it's his arm bent in half. But my God, that was terrifying. Oh, I can see it now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, what is that? <laughs> oh, no, it's too early for that. The mankini hasn't come out yet. Right, oh, okay, where should we go next? Actually, do you know what? Let's pause and get another drink, because Lockie's all right, but I suspect some of us aren't. Like a spare one. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) Okay, so we're back. And uh, because it's us, the conversation went from spittle to gonorrhea to burger nips. If you don't know what a burger nipple is, you need to... Google it for your own amusement. Um, Consult my printed works. Yeah. <laughs> 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 like is now looking down her top to uh, <laughs> a ratio of some kind. Apart from Merrin, who was eating her dinner and now just looks like she's going to be sick. Uh, Heather did not stop eating her ice cream for one second while we discussed all this wrong stuff, did you? No, she's just shaking she her head. Got a mouth cookie monster ice cream. Right, let's go to I tell you what, let's go to Josh next. Josh. Yes. I have no idea what you're going to bring us because you are so diverse. Oh, sorry, non-specialized. Oh, I'm sorry. Non-specialized. How I read your pitch. Your pitch was very specifically about something very specific that specifically happened in a specific area of ancient Egypt. And yet you were told that you're too much of a generalist, so you don't count. Apparently that is a thing. Right. <laughs> Let's see how specialist you go tonight with your scam. Indeed. The entire, my scam is a scam within a scam. That's a joke. Uh, no, okay. it's, just, <laughs> it's a complete waffle. My entire scam is a scam. My report of the scam was a scam, which was in, deliberately intended to 
hoax you all. No, um, madness. Baffled <laughs> with the two Ronnies <laughs> Baffled myself. I need to step back a second and just <laughs> rally. No, but for, for my hoax is a hoax I, I, I ran across not very long ago, actually, and I thought, well, that'll do. And uh, so here we go. Um, I'm, I'm deciding whether I need to do an American accent for it. Thoughts? Does it sound Cockney? No. Yeah. <laughs> it's unfortunate. <laughs> but uh, so this is this is this is a story of a great Victorian hoax in the Wild West. It is, and it happens when a guy called Philip Arnold, a former soldier and 49er from Kentucky, walked into the Bank of California in San Francisco with his associate and cousin, John Slack. And they made a deposit of a bag full of diamonds. Nobody knew what was in this bag at this time, but they were so excited about this deposit that they, they got asked, so what's in the bag, guys? And they said, oh, nothing important, nothing nothing big. It's just, just really exciting for us. And so obviously people pressed them for a bit more information. And eventually, Philip Arnold let slip uncut diamonds. Don't tell anybody, though. So they leave the office and, event, and immediately word spreads around that these guys have got a big bag of diamonds in the Bank of California. And the this obviously draws investors like a moth to a flame. But they're even cagier about where they got the diamonds. So one thing leads to another. And eventually they get chased so much and so much so much cash is flashed at them that they eventually say, oh, we found we found a deposit of diamonds up in Indian country. Um, that's all they said. And so the investors then get totally on board with this and say, we will, we, we're really interested in this. We want to invest in it. You have to tell us where it is. Uh, we need more, we want more evidence. We're, we, we can supply an uh, engineer to go and check out the area to make sure it's all good and stuff. And so they said, well, that's fine. We'll, we'll, we'll get you that information. And so the next year this actually happens and they produce another bag of, of diamonds which is valued uh, by the likes of, of Tiffany's and various other people's as valued being $150,000 um, with, the, with the projection being that the weight of diamonds initially on the site, which to some minds suspiciously, not many people had actually seen, could rise to $600,000. So that's pretty good. And on that basis, a massive line forms of really, really rich people and really prominent people. You have General George McClellan, who commanded the Union Army during the initial stages of the Civil War. You have, you have Baron uh, Rothschild, you have Tiffany, Charles Tiffany, and a whole bunch of other people like that forming a joint corporation uh, on the basis of this diamond find. They pay these two guys, so over $600,000, which, which nowadays equates to about $14 million. And 
they, they, and they say, thanks. Thanks for the tip guys. You can go off, spend your money. We're going to go and dig some, dig up some diamonds now. So they send out another mission, which goes up into the, uh, into this, this vague, what goes up into Colorado and they, they do find the field and they find it has got lots of diamonds just scattered across in the open above ground. That's not actually unusual. You can find diamond deposits like that. And so they go back and they send a wire back to the bosses. Uh, the chief engineer says, we've actually found it. This is going to be amazing. This is the biggest thing since the South African uh, gold rush. Uh, we are all going to be incredibly, incredibly rich. Unfortunately, the, the geological survey, the, I think it's the 40th or 44th parallel, had also been working in the area at the time. And they got wind of this and they were very confused. They were all like, so guys, um, all these diamonds you said you found, we didn't find any when we were looking and we're all geologists. So where'd you find them again? And so they gave him the information and the, the chief geologist on the on that mission, whose name was uh, Clarence King, sent his own team up to have a look. And they found that suspiciously, there were a lot of other gems scattered around on top of the, on top of the earth at this particular diamond field, gems that could not possibly have grown up alongside diamonds, leading them to the conclusion that this had been salted and now a lot of people are out of a, out of a bit out of pocket, and it, and it becomes known as the and as, as investigations into what was known as the diamond hoax of 1872, that these two con artists had gone to London after initially getting the interest in California, bought a whole mess of uncut diamonds, and then jumbled them together with a bunch of uh, cheaper, cheaper gems that they had bought from Indians in Arizona and scattered them across this field during the, during the initial uh, mission out there. And this, this, is the, this is the diamond height, this is the diamond hoax of 1872. It was called at the time the, the most gigantic and barefaced swindle of the age. It was, and it is classic sort of long con from a movie. And these two guys plan, plan this. It takes them several years to pull off and they basically do pull it off because it's the 1870s. They have justifiable deniability basically to say, well, for, for at least for a bit, for a certain amount of time, they can say, well, we just found it. You know, we told you we were, it was all good faith. You know, you guys jumped on it. You guys didn't ask the right questions. And although later on, mostly, and although, yeah, later on, after they were both dead, um, because they kind of fade into the background pretty quickly afterwards, um, it was discovered that they had actually gone to London and bought all these gems and come back and then scattered them across a field and then come back and said, we found a diamond deposit. Um, 
Arnold uh, died in uh, 1879 after opening his own bank um, and getting a, a rival banker so angry with him that he shot him. Uh, and the other guy, no one actually knows what happened to him. There's a rumor he actually he, he moved to St. Louis, but nobody knows what happened to him either. This, as far as I'm concerned, is probably one of the one of the most successful cons I've ever heard of. And uh, that's that's my pitch. Diamond. So we're back sort of to treasure, aren't we? Uh, Lockie, what do you make of this one? It sounds quite a lot like um, people are, are sort of living off of what's gone on in South Africa and, and seeing so many people get so rich so quickly that, uh, you know, all the most avaricious bastards in the world are out looking for diamonds or gold somewhere. And if, if the latest thing is out, you know, somewhere in the, in the Western United States, then that's where we need to pile off to, isn't it? And um, with, with so much money available, it seems like a, a plausible thing. Um, unfortunately, you're just too much of a generalist for me to, uh, for me to accept <laughs> this. So, um... <laughs> if you'd come with a little bit something more specific, you know, and you had like an academic qualification <laughs> in diamond scams, then we might be able to take you seriously, Joshua. Uh, or can we, just, can we call you Josho? Is that a good nickname for you? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> is this has this been made into a movie or something? I, I feel like it. It should. I think it should have been. I've, I've not seen any. No. no, I mean, and and one guy was shot. <laughs> so we've got, although, you know, initial benefits, and we don't know what happened to the other guy. He managed um, to link. I suppose if his mate's been. Um, been it's, shot then you probably want to disappear right eh? yeah i mean it's it's possible the other guy there is apparently a book somewhere where someone argues that he for some reason just kept a really low profile and became like a coffin maker in st louis um for the rest of his life but no okay. but i don't know if that's actually accepted as being legitimate or not because nobody knew what happened to him for a very long time until like the 20th century or something like that Heather's suggesting that the movie's rubbish. Is that right? Noddy. It, it could be a really good movie. I think someone should get on this. <laughs> yeah, I feel like, do you know what? It needs to be done in the spirit of that, like, um, a, an ungentlemanly act, that Falklands film. Like, complete mm -hmm. bumbling Britishness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel... I feel like Josh should play the lead role as well. I'm down for it. I'm a generalist. I need the, I need, I need the gig. <laughs> <laughs> Just so you can get a, go off and get a PhD in the 25th dynasty. So you're allowed to go yeah. yeah? Yeah. I'll, I'll play Baron from Rothschild getting very angry. Yeah, awesome. that'd be, that would be quite scary. Where are my diamonds? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I the feel ground, like Chris so. needs to be the other con man. <laughs> get, get the Cohen brothers in to write and direct. Yeah, definitely. I say we do it right. Okay, who have we got left? Let's go to let's go to Merrin next because uh, Heather's got allergies and I think she's in the middle of a choking fit, which is why she's nodding on radio. But uh, yeah, quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. All right. Okay. Ready? Yeah. Is this your gift from Kit, this one? Might be, yes. Yes, Because Kit is currently on an aeroplane to Miami. We're not fucking jealous at all, are we? No. No, no. (laughs) So what have you and Kit worked out? Lucky was spot on. We usually think of scams as something run for illegal gain. The motive is persuasion of one kind or another. I was tempted to venture that religion might be the font of some of the greatest scams in history. Religion itself, perhaps. I'm not averse to taking the opposite side in a debating society, if necessary. Scams and religion go hand in hand. Who doesn't remember the Gospel of Josephus, the 1927 forgery, attributed to the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus, who actually created by the Italian writer Luigi Mocha to raise publicity for one of his own I'm digressing. We could have done biblical level chapter and verse on some of the most notable instances of unethical methods being used to increase wealth or exert influence, if not affluence, due to an affinity with deities of one kind or another. However, I am here this evening to represent the inimitable globetrotting, motorsport jotting, award-winning science journalist, our friend, our colleague, our compadre in absentia, Dr. Kit Chapman. (laughs) So, like the vanilla buttercream feigning relevance against the backdrop of a rich coffee and walnut confection, I am here to provide our combined thoughts, which run thus. What is a scam? The absolute definition of a scam, as Lockie said, is something simple along the lines of a scam as a dishonest scheme or fraud. And in fact, it may be connected to the word scamper, first heard in 1782, meaning highway robber. In short, a scam is an activity that leaves one party at a disadvantage by intentionally using deception. The truth is, a scam could be deceitful, but the net effect of a scam could also be quite beneficial. So, What about a scam that could, say, help defeat an evil regime? Kit's pick is an organisation known as the 20 Committee, the British team set up in the Second World War and the work they did that almost certainly shortened that conflict by years. Now, the British were masters of deceit during the Second World War. In wartime, truth is so precious, she should always be attended by a bodyguard of lies, said Winston Churchill. And at this point, we could mention the ruses that kept the Graf Spee in Montevideo, or the efforts to conceal the fact the British had cracked the German codes at Bletchley Park. And on a personal note, I'm going to add the work of Jasper Meskeline and his magic gang, because hiding the Suez Canal 
deceiving Axis forces into thinking Alexandria Harbour was in fact at Marriott Bay and nowhere near the true location of Alexandria Harbour, and putting up tarpaulins to create the awe of complete devastation at the de Havilland Mosquito plant at Hatfield, getting the Germans to believe it had been blown up when it was still working really quite well, all things considered. Those are the kind of serious, so bad they're good scams that are going to take some beating. However, for Kit, it's the work of the 20 committee as a whole that trumps these all. You see, thanks to an Orion penchant for systemic order and the subsequent predictability of German spies and the Abwehr codes being broken early on in the Second World War, the British successfully rounded up every single German agent as they arrived in Britain. All of them, that is, except one who never reported back and killed himself. Let me say this again. The Germans had no successful spies working in Britain throughout the entire Second World War. Some men and women came over by boat, some by parachute, all of them ill-prepared. Many were picked up immediately after making Jeeves and Worcester-sized disastrous mistakes. And I'll give you one example. There was a group of three agents, Vera Eriksson, a Russian by birth, Carl Theodor Drucker and Werner Weitel, who landed in Scotland. And all three of them tried to hop onto a train to get to London. Now, never mind Gordon Jackson's great escape kind of, good luck, old chap. These guys were beyond belief to the point of incredulity. They were wearing German clothing. They were carrying German-made products. Um, they were carrying German weapons and, and a lot of cash. They spoke German to everybody. They were arrested very quickly, interrogated, and not surprisingly, there was enough evidence to declare them German spies. Karl and Werner were sentenced to be hanged, but Vera survived by testifying against Karl and becoming an agent for MI5. And this gave the Brits an idea. There we have it. Rather than simply execute the agents as they landed, the British did something rather clever. They recruited the German spies and got them to feed all kinds of nonsense back to high command in their guise as double agents. The con is on, the scammers scam. In fact, the British double agent scams were run by the 20 committee, so-called because the Roman numeral for 20, XX, is a double cross. And that was coordinated by the brilliant Ewan Montague, now, in peacetime, Montague had been a barrister, very clever man, and his legal brain was put to work trying to find out how they could best scam in German intelligence into all kinds of deliberate errors. Perhaps Montague's most memorable coup was Operation Mincemeat, when a dead body was made to look as though it had drowned and it was then dumped off the coast of Spain carrying fake invasion plans in the hope the Spanish would pass the body onto the Germans, which they did diverting whole divisions of irritable German soldiers away from Sicily just before it was invaded. Scamio whamio. But this was just one of many tricks, many plans and evil scams perpetrated by the 20 Committee. Through their double agents in particular, 20 Committee weaved a completely fictional scamming spy network across Britain, thus convincing the Germans they had hundreds of spies feeding them important detail. In reality, the Germans were being given information they couldn't act on, low-level intel that didn't matter, or complete fakes and falsisms made by the British to lure them into traps. And as the committee chair John Marsman wrote after the war, by 1941, the British, the British actively ran and controlled the German espionage system in Great Britain. Let me illustrate this for you with one point. 
Just a couple of examples of the hundreds of scams the Brits pulled off through the 20 Committee. The 20 Committee created inaccurate metre rules and tape measures and posed them next to debt charges, thus convincing the Germans the British had a secret mini weapon that didn't exist. When they learned that German U-boats were using a particular series of underwater chasms south of Ireland to get their bearings, they used several different agents to transmit minor tidbits, little puzzle pieces the Germans could use to build a slightly different picture that Allies had put sea mines in the area. Not true, of course, but it stopped the U-boats using a valuable navigation aid. And that operation shows the intricacy of the 20 Committee's work. They became incredibly good at creating false trails and leaving it to the Germans to draw wrong conclusions. Scamtastic, scamtabulous, scam bloody fantastic. By 1944, the scamming had become so successful that the 20 committee spies managed to convince the Germans the D-Day landings were a feint. As part of Operation Fortitude, there were two actions, each worthy of a podcast in their own right. One, Operation Sky, a scam run by the British that involved mobilising a fake army in southern Scotland and Ireland to simulate landing preparations in Norway. The other, Operation Quicksilver, was entrusted to General Patton, making it look as though Old Ike was going to hunker down and attack Calais. In reality, there was no army at Calais, just a very bored General Patton, a load of fake radio messages and a handful of balloons that looked like tanks. Operation Fortitude was an epic scam. And Ben McIntyre describes the protagonists in Fortitude so well in his book, Double Cross. He calls them a bisexual Peruvian playgirl, a tiny Polish fighter pilot, a mercurial French woman, a Serbian seducer, and a deeply eccentric Spaniard with a diploma in chicken farming. Scammers, all a little bit extra, but I digress. And perhaps some of that's my fault, not kids. Perhaps the greatest scam in the Second World War, if not in history, is the relatively simple scam run by the 20 Committee that saved tens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of lives. When V1 and V2 bombs started hitting London, the spies being run by the 20 Committee were asked by their German handlers where those projectiles were landing so that the missile fuses could be adjusted properly. Via their scamming subterfuge, and yes, that is the 73rd mention of the word scam, a little bit of SEO going on here, the British quickly began orchestrating the replies of their double agents, over-reporting German hits in northwest London, under-reporting hits in the southeast, so that gradually, each week, the British managed to convince the Germans to re-aim their V2s short by a few miles. By January 1945, over half the V2s that were being launched at London weren't even falling within the London Civil Defence region, but harmlessly on the Isle of Sheppey, which as Kit points out, nobody really cares about. The 20 20 Committee's work remains the greatest intelligence coup of all time. And it just goes to show some scams may be a force for good. I really like that one. Lucky, a good scam? Yeah, good. I think um, they can maybe, uh, they'll score a could have done better for the amount of medway that still remains. Um, <laughs> a piece of uh, medway. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Still, miss, miss medway altogether. What were they thinking? <laughs> um, yes, um, well, it's a little bit more sophisticated than sticking an extra funnel on your boat, isn't it, I suppose? But... Um, <laughs> I, yeah, I do like it. 
I do have a question, actually, um, because when I think of, because in, in, I know nothing of the Second World War, of course, but uh, in, in the First World War, some of the, some of the, one of the better kind of intelligence coups um, is the Zimmerman telegram, which was um, British intelligence almost <laughs> conning, conning the Americans uh, as, as much as anything. Did the 20 Committee ever do any work on our allies at all, do you know? On, on our allies? Yeah, is there any kind of... Scheming, Ooh, scheming what? done to deceiving each other. Yeah, to to persuade or coerce. No, no you need to read there. Ben's book about all the British nutters running around. Was it our man in New York? We interviewed him. Yeah, that Hemming. was brilliant. Yeah. yeah, Henry Hemming. Yeah, no, um, we, we didn't. We, we got our act together by the Second World War, and it was a case of if we're going to deceive anybody, let's focus on deceiving the bad guys. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I kind of, I guess I come across this stuff maybe in my London uh, work occasionally when we, we um, talk about the last man executed in the Tower of London, uh, who was Josef Jacobs, who I presume the 20 committee were all over. Poor sod broke his leg, leg on landing and was caught with a load of German spy stuff. Didn't look good. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting, I think somewhere in the IWM there's a placard, I know there is, how sad is this? There's a placard that says we had over... Um, the Allies had over 12,000, I think it was, um, agents working across Europe. And in all, I think the Germans only, only sort of managed to land about two, 200 fairly um, innocuous, not very successful men and women in Britain throughout the whole of the Second World War. That, that, that's yeah. not there anymore. <laughs> but you know the placard I'm meaning, yeah. Secret War <laughs> Gallery, yeah. 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 I don't even know the case. <laughs> Excellent. Right. Yeah, it's very, very strong. Like that one. Yeah, it is very strong as ever from Merrin. Let's go to let's go to Heather. Okay. Um, hopefully you can't hear any of the rain that's pouring down and is it biblical in Ohio right now? Yeah, it's really bad right now. But um, I am doing my greatest scam on the Indian Removal Act. Um, hmm. Basically. Um, yes, go for it. Let's hear this one. I want to hear this one. Um, I, I found out that basically the idea for Indian reservations actually went all the way back to 1656 when uh, Virginia and other English colonies spoke of setting up areas exclusively for the Native Americans' use. Um, it apparently kind of started in 1625 when some of the pilgrims asked uh, Samoset um, who was the local chief of the Wampanoag to give them 12,000 acres of land. Um, the Native Americans believed that no one owns land. It's just there for everybody. And he basically was like, fine, we'll, we'll, we'll amuse the weird white people. We'll go through the ceremony, say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's yours. Make a mark on the paper and be, be done with it. But the problem was, more settlers came after that and with more settlers there came the need for even more land <clears throat> so uh the governor of the massachusetts bay colony said colonists were only filling a vacuum in the wilderness thus you know native americans weren't doing their job to uh cultivate the land and develop it so they deserve to basically have the land taken away from them because they weren't being good stewards of the land and thus had no legal right to it so using that statement, the English settlers um, 
started pushing against the Indians to either sell more land or they just would write out, take it. Um, and if they, they did actually buy the land, they would frequently go through one Native American who most of the time had no authority to even agree to any of the above uh, request, requests in quotes um, for the land. They would not really understand English or have a very, very, very minimal understanding of the English language. Um, and so they would just be like, okay, fine, whatever, you can have it. And the, pilgr or the pilgrims or the English would be like, okay, thanks. Now it's all ours. And they're like, wait a second. You told me that it was just going to be like, you guys would just travel through the land. And that was, we're cool with that. And then you'll say like, no, 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 it's ours now. And uh, you guys can go over there. So by this, they, the, the Native Americans would end up giving away all property rights when they just meant, okay, you can, you can have some occupancy, travel or hunting rights, but the English decided, nah, we're just, just gonna take the whole thing. We're gonna tell you one thing, but do the other. So, um, after a while, the, the English ended up expanding westward into the French-held lands, which led to a war between the English and the French with um, Native Americans being allied on both sides. Not going to get into that because it's a long one and there's a lot that goes along with it. But some of the Native Americans who sided with the French were treated horribly by the English because the English won. And even the Indians that had sided with the English didn't really turn out much better, but yeah, it's what happened. The, the United States government ended up trying to push the Indians into other territories, which caused some Native Americans who had never come in contact with other Native Americans to end up warring because they were fighting for the same lands, which, you know, conflicts, death doesn't work out well for the Indians, but boy, it works out great for the English who are like, oh, wow, hey, look at that. We have a ton more acreage of land. All right, guys, let's go. Let's uh, set up some more homes. So the more people who came in meant the more land was needed. So we decided that, okay, we got to do something with the Native Americans. You know, they're in our way. Well, the government got together and decided, um, we got some land over here that we don't know what the hell to do with it. I mean, we can't really do anything with it. Scrub brush and shit. We'll move them there. That sounds like a great idea. Yeah, we'll just shove them there. It's fine. So the government would shove all the, the Native Americans there. And when natural resources like gold would happen to be found in those barren, undesirable lands of the Indians, the U.S. government was like, we need to move you again. We, I know we told you this was yours and that we weren't going to make you move, but we need to move you again. So we would monopolize what should have been Indian land and they should have benefited from it. But the United States government just said, no, we can't let you have that. It's ours. So after constantly moving Indians from place to place to place, 
I'm sure they love that. We decided to um, <clears throat> we decided to push through the Indian Removal Act, and the person behind this was President Andrew Jackson. I'm not going into him because he's a complete twat, and I don't feel like being angry. So, anyways, they decide that they're going to re- relocate all the Native Americans in the north as well as the southeast west of the Mississippi River. They promised the Indians, this is going to be yours. It's guaranteed to be forever. Forever in quotations, because apparently forever is like 20 years, if that. So they promised the Native Americans that we're doing this for your protection, because there was some fighting amongst white settlers and Native Americans because, um, well, it wasn't the white settlers land and they were taking over Indian lands and the Indians were pissed. So were, they were fighting. So in an effort to control that, the United States government says, look, we'll fix this. We're going to protect you by moving you somewhere else. Um, they assured the Native Americans that their new homes would be incorporated into any state and t- would never be incorporated into any state or territory. So it would be theirs. And the best And Andrew Jackson even said that this was the best way of protecting the Indians against the assault of land-hungry squatters and speculators. And this was totally voluntary. By voluntary, he meant you had to. It was mandatory. You don't get to say no. So there was five main groups of Indians that had to be removed. There was lots of smaller Indian groups that basically gets lumped into these bigger groups because I can't go into every single one. I'd be here all night. And as it is, this is long. I'm sorry. But the Choctaws were the first tribes to be removed. They had 20, about 20,000 Native Americans abandoning their homes and giving up 10.5 million acres to the government. Uh, late in 1831, the United States military accompanied 13,000 men, women, and children on a 400-mile journey, traveling in wagons, horseback, and on foot. There were soldiers there, but not for the Indians' safety. N- no, they were there to make sure nobody ran. And if they did, well, do the math. Um, it ended up becoming a death march because the winter temperatures were below freezing, And pneumonia was rampant because it was freezing and they weren't really well prepared for it. Then spring hit. And if anybody has been anywhere down south in spring, they will know it's horrible. Um, Yeah, it's gross. It's hot, moist, and it's a great place for sickness. So cholera hit and killed hundreds more. So the people who had made it through the pneumonia might have gotten wiped out by the cholera epidemic. So the contract, to make it worse, the contractors who were supplied by the United States government and federal agents who were supposed to be there for the Native Americans' welfare cheated them out of food and supplies, which caused even more death because, hey, starvation is a thing. We need food. So in all, approximately 2,000 Native Americans died. They needs that remained um, the remaining Choctaw were supposed to follow the first group, found out about 
what happened to the first group. We're like, no, we are not going on this. And we're forced on another death march. So things were not going well for the Choctaw. The Chickasaw, which most of them had already migrated west years before, um, basically they rounded every, everybody who was wet was left, had them sign away their lands and push them west. But there wasn't many, according to the book I read. Then the Cherokees decided, well, screw this. We're not getting anywhere fighting them. So we're taking you to the Supreme Court. Yeah, it didn't go well there either. Um, they tried seeking an injunction to stop Georgia from stripping the tribe of its sovereign powers. The Supreme Court refused to consider the Cherokee Nation versus Georgia, ruling that the Native Americans were domestic dependent nations or words of the U.S., not, in, not independent foreign nations with sovereignty rights. They had been told for decades that, yes, they were independent foreign nations with sovereignty rights. And now the government said, nah. We changed our mind. So um, the Cherokees repudiated the treaty because they were, of course, made to sign another treaty that could be used for toilet paper because government didn't care. Um, and um, by claiming the men had no authority to act on behalf of the Cherokees because, of course, they picked men who couldn't speak English very well and had no authority to approve anything at all. So they vowed, yeah, we're not leaving. By this point, Jackson had, Andrew Jackson had died. So President Martin Van Buren said, okay, fine. And sent the army to eject the Cherokees from their homeland by force. So 17,000 Cherokees were moved to garden camps and then forced on a treacherous thousand mile long march. On the 1st of October in 1836, 645 wagons rolled westward, and due to disease, exposure, and starvation, about a fourth of them actually died in route. So still not doing well. Um, then when it came time to move the Creek American Indians, they had already given the United States 23 million acres. So they had frankly already done their bit, but we're greedy, we wanted more. So, um, they ended up having their land overrun by American settlers in 1832. So they were like, okay, maybe they'll go away if we give them five more million acres. I mean, we're reaching here, guys. And then had a different parcel of two million acres that was actually redistributed to the Indians for them to live on. So they're like, well, I guess this works. So the ones who accepted, accepted the allotments soon were overrun by the white settlers and got kicked out again. So they got mad, which rightfully so, and went after the invading settlers and instead of helping the Indians who were getting forced to be removed from land that they had been promised three times, we sent the military in and crushed them. So more death and they were um, caused to make another march into what was called Indian Territory past the Mississippi line. Half of them died on the way there. And the last one is the Seminoles of Florida. And many of them held land titles from way back into the uh, era of the Spanish land grant. So way before America was even rolling on its way. And in the 1819 treaty, 
when Spain ceded Florida to the U.S., it provided that all inhabitants of the territory were entitled to all rights of other U.S. citizens. The United States and the government signed the 1923 Treaty of Camp Moultrie, in which the Seminoles would leave the coastal lands as well as most of western Florida and resettle into the central part of the state. So we then took 30 million acres from their area that they had been living in and said, okay, we're going to take this, but you can move to the center of the state. We'll give you farm tools, livestock, and annual payments for 20 years as well as food so you can get resettled. Well, they started to resettle and the white settlers were like, hey, his land looks really nice. I want that. Ours doesn't look that great. The grass is greener over there. Can we have, can we have, you know what? We're just going to take it. It's fine. So the white settlers complained that the Indians had the best land. And the U.S. government then said, yeah, it looks better. Just go ahead and take it. So they got rounded up. And in an effort to try to not have to go somewhere else and die along the way, they said, screw it. We'll just fight. Nothing else has worked. If we're going to go down, we're going to go down our way. So they actually held out for seven years and launched numerous raids and attacks and almost a full-scale war. And the United States government pretty much completely exterminated them within an inch of their life because that's what it is. And finally, in 1842, 4,000 Seminoles surrendered and were shoved off into the Indian Territory. Things did not go well for them. So yes, that is the biggest scam because we were saying it was totally for their protection and to help benefit them. I'm done. Round of applause for Heather. It's not even one fucking scam, is it, Lockie? It's perpetuating a complete lie in order to get rid of an entire people. It's yep. a lie followed by another lie, followed by another lie, followed by whatever. It's... I I kind of I'm not sure scam. Yeah, I I feel myself sort of looking back at the definition of scam, and you know, while dishonest scheme or fraud is is correct, you know, this is. This is orchestrated and it's genocidal, and it's. I think that that takes it beyond simple scam territory. Um, have you been getting ideas from Alina? No, I haven't. <laughs> yeah, no, it is only the it, not only the Holocaust that is banned from discussion down it down the pub, but yeah, um, uh, it, it is actually. Sorry, it, oh, no, it was I was going to say biggest consequences of the night, isn't it? It was actually a. Uh, I was talking to my dad about what to do and we both were like oh he's like hey how about this one i'm like yeah that would be the biggest scam of all and it's basically a russian nesting doll of scams because literally it just every treaty is disregarded and that wasn't real and and we're, we'll just we'll give you another one uh it's been five minutes we'll just for it this time yeah we're really, really honest this time. Don't look behind our back at the crossed fingers. Yeah. Josh, I know you're not a specialist, but you've looked at this quite uh, intensely, haven't you, in your non-specialist? Uh... <laughs> if only we had a specialist here. No. <laughs> if only we had someone who uh, had spent hours and weeks and months reading this stuff. Josh? Uh, I think there's a good case to be made that the, the Indian Removal Act is, is just a massive scam. I mean, first of all, you do have that kind of, um, 
you know, with a lot of historical things that look dodgy, it's hard to find out what one party gets for it. And obviously the United States government, in this case, they're getting the land, the rights to the land, and they're being able to fob off um, critics. Weirdly enough, like the likes of Davy Crockett, who voted against the Indian Removal Act and then got kicked out of his constituency the next year for doing so. Uh, to say we're doing this for their own good because there's all been all these wars and stuff happening. So if they all go over here, there won't be any more of that. That, despite the efforts of the Cherokee, who they who were considered by the U.S. government uh, one of the number of in quote civilized tribes that had adopted European clothes, they lived in what two Americans were recognizable houses, stuff like that, and. It is just a massive um, fabricated scam to get the land. And it resulted in massive civilian death. It's a huge scar on the history of uh, the Cherokee, Chickasaw Creek, Seminole history. Anybody who was involved in the trails, many trails of tears that led west. The Seminoles most famously like Heather said, fought back in the most famous of the wars, leading weirdly enough to the only Indian war that the United States did not actually end. They didn't sign a treaty of surrender, so the Seminoles like to proudly say they were never defeated. But the point is, this is a massive scam on a governmental level. Lockie? Um, yeah, the lying fucks. Um, I'm, I'm still on the kind of scam does not equal genocide kind of thing. I think this is this is well, really I know, it's, I we're moving into a different category here, aren't we? Of I dishonesty th and I, th I think that I mean I don't want to be arguing for Heather at <laughs> point or anything like that, but the genocide comes as a result of the scam. Yeah. Point. Okay, it's not actually okay. intended to exterminate them. It's just a byproduct of it, and everybody's okay with it. Uh, see, now Lockie's like, damn it, this is supposed to be a pub thing, and now I'm like... We're on an, yeah, we're on an <laughs> ends and means thing, aren't we? Does the end justify the means, or the means, but the means, nobody cares about the means, and nobody cares, well, they, 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 they achieve the end that they want, so... So yes, in their in their mind, the the means do justify the end, don't I they? I think it can um, be qualified as a scam, is the point. I think it can, under the definition you've under the definition yeah we, no we i agree are. yeah the the, the, the pre-established def you know that dishonest scheme or fraud yes yeah, yeah. that, that is, certainly is that thing um so yes well it, it qualifies it's a it's a hell of a, an event and it's a, a hell of a thing to bring down the pub i mean uh, as well, but... it's a scam like you're saying it's a russian nesting doll because within this massive governmental scam you have you know, land hustlers and people taking advantage of Native Americans individually, all the way down the line to the lowest level you have, you know, it's just a, a mass uh, opportunity for injustice and and hucksters and swindling and stuff. I mean, my, my other one besides Bailey's was going to be bottled water in the supermarket. In like <laughs> yeah. what, 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 the, what the fuck is going on there? But yeah, this is uh, this is different level. Stuff. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, it's incredibly strong and moving and depressing. Yeah, and very well articulated by Heather as well. Yeah, uh, it's, it's a massive subject. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, 
<laughs> Heather's just put sorry about the length in the chat and Chris. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> Let's go to something uh, I already know what Beth's going to argue for, I think. And uh, I totally fucking agree with her. Beth, what is the biggest scam? Charlie's going to love this as well if it is what I think it is. What's the it, biggest scam in history? It is what you think it is. Um, I really have gone a completely different direction. And I need you all to bear with me on this and let me get to the end before you start shouting bullshit. Um, I really thought more people would go like proper down the pub and go not serious and stuff. Um, But I'm going to stick to my guns today and convince you lot why the biggest scam in history is the creation and continued use of margarine as a food product. (laughs) (laughs) George V is with you 100%. The yes. maid eat it on that factory visit to the Maypole <laughs> factory or whatever, and he was like, hmm, very nice. I'm not eating that at the palace. So, yeah. go so right, okay. I said, please bear with me on this. Um, margarine was invented, or the first sort of what we would consider margarine today, um, was invented in France um, in 1869 by Hippolyte Meger-Murier during the Franco-Prussian Wars, Um He invented it in response to a competitive challenge from the French government um, under Napoleon III, which was looking for a cheap, efficient and stable substitute for butter for use to um, to feed the armies, essentially, you know, as as an alternative to butter. Simple, you know, pretty solid idea, you know, in time of war when you haven't got refrigeration and, and so on. It makes sense to have a alternative that you can you know move around keep for a bit longer but why are we still using this as an alternative to butter today um it's margarine is technically marketed as being a healthier option than butter uh, but i completely disagree with this um not only does butter taste much better um but it is actually technically a natural product made from milk that you get from cows while margarine is in essence a man-made product loaded with natural unnatural um additives chemicals what have you in made in such a way so that it resembles butter and to produce it there is a long it's, it's a lengthy process with some quite for me when I was researching it further I saw I didn't actually realize this is how they made margarine but they take vegetable oils generally um you could have soy sunflower corn canola oil whichever and mix them with tiny particles usually tiny metal particles which is usually nickel oxide the oil is then subjected to high temperatures emulsifiers and starch are then added into the mixture to give it a better consistency. That mixture is then yet again subjected to high temperatures, like thousands of degrees, um, to get it to dig it, for there to be a chemical change to the structure of the fat, which turns it into a solid, which actually in some aspects can make it rancid. So it needs to be steamed cleaned to remove its unpleasant odor. Margarine's natural color as well is not the pale yellow that you see in the normal tubs. It's actually gray. And to make it yellow, they remove this grey colour with bleach. Um, dyes and then flavourings are added to it to make it yellow and to make it resemble butter. And then it's compressed and packaged into blocks or tubs and sold as a healthy food. Let <laughs> 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 <I> say more. <laughs> um, so generally, it's made generally now with vegetable oil. Originally, it was made with beef tallow. So 
So it came from actual beef fat, obviously full of all the unsaturated, you know, saturated, whatever have you fats. Um, but the margarine that we use now with vegetable oils does con- it does contain these good fats of polyunsaturated fats, blah, 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 all these science words that I don't give two shits about. Um, and although it does help you reduce your bad cholesterol, not all of these margarines are created equal. Some of them do contain trans fats, which in general as well, the more solid the margarine, the more trans fats it has, um, which trans fats increase blood cholesterol levels and the risk of heart disease, um, also lowers levels of the high density good cholesterols. And also in, in like alongside this it's just one point from from a standpoint of like heart disease even though yes butter is a product they say does contribute towards heart disease margarine in some places are no better um there were studies that i'm going to read in through now that you know a a study in 1993 that linked margarine to increased heart disease in women um who if you think about it, are probably the more likely audience for margarines and these alternatives to butters and so on. Um, and the, the recipes, you know, they are obviously always changed and try to, you know, improve them and so on. But it's still, there is no, for me, it's not clearly obvious that if you swap out your butter for your margarine, it is going to give you many more benefits for your health. And not only that, there are actually some increased risks for certain types of cancers. So a, sto- a study in Norway in 2012 found that trans fats in margarines are associated with increased risks in lung, colon, rectum, breast, endometrium and prostate cancers. And 2008 study with 25,000 women participating also found links between trans fat and increased level of breast cancer as well. Additionally, another study which looked at breastfeeding women found that those with diets high in trans fats, like the kinds you, the, the kinds you can find in some margarines, pass that on in their breast milk, which then lowers the quality of the milk that is being passed on to the child. And trans fat can also lead to insulin resistance as well. Now, while you might think this is a load of bollocks and that I am talking out of my ass, and you may well be right. My argument as margarine as a scam is not simply a joke. It speaks to the fact that we as a people are constantly told how we should change our diet, our lifestyle and anything else we can in order to be the perfect person, the perfect body with the perfect shape. The implication being that we need these altered foods in our lives in order to attain this perfection. The implication being that we need low fats, low sugar, health foods to be the best person we can. But this can be a dangerous idea. Yes, it's good to be healthy. Yes, it's good to have your five a day. But the obsession with the perfect person and the perfect body has moved beyond health now, particularly with social media. It is an image thing. It is one step on a very, very long line, which can eventually for some lead to extreme diets, diet pills, detox drinks, and so on. I, for many, many years, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this room, have been one of the people who has hang-ups over their body. Being bullied for my body as a child, 
Growing up as a teenage girl during the boom of social media sites and just being a woman in general, with magazine touting articles such as how to lose half a stone in a week, I truly have felt all the emotions about my body. And these are still thoughts I struggle with and probably will do for many years to come. However, I'm growing to the realisation that these ideas and believing them, the low fat foods, the low sugar sweets, even the margarine that can lower your cholesterol and is better for you than butter, can only be to a certain extent bad for you. Life is too short not to enjoy it. Eat the cake, particularly if Charlie's making it. Eat the sweets, eat the pizzas, have the butter on your toast. I could get hit by a bus tomorrow. I hope not, but it's always possible. But do I want my last thought to be, I should have had butter on my toast and crumpets rather than god-awful margarine. So whilst margarine may not be the most obvious of scams, it represents a culture and a way of life that has scammed men and women, young and old alike, to deprive themselves of the joys of life. So I say no to this scam. I say no as I sit here with my cider and my chocolate and indulge to my heart's content. Well done. Do you know what cracked me up halfway through that was I think it was Lockie put in the chat. If I was a vegan cake baker, I'd be really pissed off right about now. Uh, <laughs> you're a vegan cake baker. I am indeed. I, actually, <laughs> I no, I think what what Beth has almost almost put up as as her submission is diet culture. Yeah, and... isn't what she was going with. It was either that or she was going to go with women's products and tampons. So yeah, well, this yeah. is the, this is the thing: margarine and products like margarine alternatives are marketed by marketing people to to tell you that there's a problem and that this product will solve it so you've you've been told by your doctor you've got high cholesterol okay that is a problem you need to you know if if they're worried about the fat surrounding your heart that is a problem that needs addressing with lifestyle changes very very easily the solution is not to keep heaping margarine on your food in the same way as you did butter the, the solution is you know, maybe you need to cut down. If you've got to that point, you need to cut down a little bit and have some some you know proper whole foods that haven't been created in a lab. Cake is cake is cake, and margarine and butter. Then you know, not one is not better for you than the other. There's still there's still that product, and you know, a cake that is made with vegan products is still cake. Um, and the same with sweets and stuff. The issue is what we're being sold, what mm. we're being told, and what we're being conditioned to believe. And I mean, it is two components away from legally being plastic. Yeah, oh, yeah. And you need this because you're wrong. There's something wrong with you that our product can fix. Well, and butter, apparently, the first instances of butter, 2000 BC, and we got all the way through to Napoleon the Third without <laughs> margarine, and how many people were dying for because of their butter consumption? Uh, well, it was harder to get hold of because uh, it wasn't mass produced, and that's that's a whole other issue. You know, the mass, the the huge overproduction of dairy and meat. That's that's another issue. But Beth touched on the main thing, which is that nobody's perfect. No food is perfect. No diet is perfect. And nobody is perfect. So, you know, I, I happen to eat a lot of avocado. I like avocado. And there's people <laughs> who tell you that I am destroying the world. I've got almond milk in the fridge. You must. Oh my God. I'm laughing that Heather's just put in the chat. I'm hungry again. Yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've got my Oreos. My Oreos, yes. by the way. 
accidentally yeah. completely vegan. Um, Fancy chocolate. Thirsty again. No, I thought that was brilliant, Beth. And thank you for, mm. for speaking up for everybody who's ever felt like that. And I'm just so glad that I'm, I missed my teenage years on social media. I just have a load of really embarrassing photos and hideous memories. Oh. Yeah, no, no, I hit, I hit, I hit social media right at the age of about 15, 16, which, mm. nah, nah, bugger that. No. Lockie, you've got some margarine in your fridge. Yeah, uh, butter. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm totally butter. It's, um, I, I completely agree with you. And my, yeah, kind of, my, my mum as a scientist, um, kind of sowed the seeds with me at quite a young age, like mar- margarine. No, was it with kind of sunflower leaves on it? Rather, we might be bubbling hydrogen through sunflower oil or something like that, but it's not. It's not a natural product at all. Go to hell. Um, and you know, kind of the idea of the Flora London Marathon, uh, for example. So, oh, we're super healthy. Oh, we're all athletes. All oh, right. Yeah. Okay. It's like McDonald's sponsoring sports events and Heineken you know, like, the football. That was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hiding the Heineken bottles. <laughs> And the coke yeah. as well. I mean, with yeah, the cr- with the exception of Gail Monfils, who drinks a can of fat coke in a tennis game to get his sugar levels up. I mean, can you think of any athlete that's going to tout that as being what they need in the middle of a sporting event? It's going to dehydrate you. It's going to give you highs and lows. It's just not going to not going to work. So yes, I'm uh, I'm totally totally on board with this as a concept, as a scam, and I think it's a strong shout. Heather, how? yucked out were you as a microbiologist listening to that process for making margarine i actually knew about it um you have something even worse in america you have whipped spread (laughs) oh oh, that sounds oh i was raised and i can't believe it's not butter yeah whipped spread is like a paler yucky more tasteless version it's even more disgusting i would rather chew my mountain dew bottle (laughs) than eat the whip stuff but I was raised in, I can't believe it's not butter. And when I found out how bad it actually was. When you tasted actual butter, you were like, I can completely believe that that's not butter. (laughs) Well, I didn't like it at first because I was like, oh, that's disgusting. Because I, you know, 15, 16 years of being raised and I can't believe it's not butter. And we switched to regular butter. I was like, oh, it's horrible. My God, it's so great now. (laughs) I know. (laughs) It's wonderful. The the night is life is too short not to have butter on your toast. Mm. I'm I'm the crumpet. Yeah. I, th- I think one of the biggest reasons I hate margarine is not because I like it, but because margarine was what kept the whale- whaling industry going into the 20th century. Oh, it wasn't. Mm. Did not know that one. It's vile, horrible stuff. Right, there's just one to go, and it's mine, uh, which it will probably come apparent that I've only done this in like 20 minutes, but I figured we haven't had enough politician backing tonight. Uh, so this is probably going to be the shortest pitch I've ever done. Uh, and I haven't even read it through. So here goes nothing. Right. The biggest scam in history is a line drawn in the sand. A hypothetical piece of shit drawn by Britain and France across Palestine, Syria and through to modern day Iraq. Yes, I'm talking about the sykes pico agreement of World War One, which one Frenchman described as drawn in a fairly unclear way on paper without any regard to the territory of the tribes or the lie of the land. That's possibly the most polite thing you could say about it. This was all about how to carve up the remnants of the Ottoman Empire when it finally collapsed. 
Mark Sykes was a snivelling little fraud who knew a lot less about the region than he made out and managed to condemn the Middle East to misery because he, and I quote, allows his prepossessions to run away with his judgment. George Pico is equally tedious. He's a Brit-hating member of the French Committee of Asia. France is mildly obsessed with Syria, and you won't believe why they think they own it at the time of the First World War. Their argument is, because they started the First Crusade and walked through it 800 years before, it's, it's French spiritual soil. Yes, this is how nonsense this is. Right. The result is a very bad tempered showdown between two supposed allies in the middle of a war. But what sucks is what this means for the Arabs across the Arabian Peninsula. Not many Arabs are that impressed with being under Turkish rule. Hussein Sharif of Mecca had big hopes and dreams. That's uh, Alec Guinness's dad in the film. He wanted to be king of the Arab world and he's willing to fight for it. Britain sees opportunity here. They've got big concerns about the Suez Canal, not least because if the Turks come all the way down through Palestine and past Arabia and take it, all of her troops from India, Australia and New Zealand will have to sail the long way around Africa to get to the war. Wouldn't it be awesome if you could buddy up with Hussein and cause some proper aggro for your enemy? Not only that, but Muslims on your side would deflect away from Turkish attempts to get the whole Islamic world to rise up in a jihad against you. Win-win. The issue is what the British promised the Arabs while they were sitting on a document that shafted them royally. Pico was a knob and a hypocrite, but he wasn't stupid. He said to promise the Arabs a large state is to throw dust in their eyes. And yet that is what we did. Someone far more intelligent than me on this says in the Sykes-Pico agreement, the two men paid lip service to the promise of Arab independence that McMahon, that's a dastardly minor statesman hanging out in Egypt and the Sudan, had made to Hussein, but then used Sykes's line in the sand from Acre on the Mediterranean coast to Kirkuk near the Persian frontier to divide into the region that the British High Commissioner had offered to Hussein. We know that we did buddy up that there was an Arab revolt and that some bloke called Lawrence turned up and got involved and that they made a very long film about it all in the 1960s. He actually believed, however naively, in the United Arab cause and was utterly disgusted about how duplicitous this whole scam made him. He spent a lot of his time trying to sabotage Sykes and Pico. He was so pissed that he advocated the Arab force getting to Damascus before everyone else in 1918 because it would be harder to shaft them out of their dues if they were then sitting in the biggest prize on France's wish list. Didn't work. And despite the presence of both Prince Faisal, that is Alec Guinness, and Lawrence of Arabia at Versailles, there was nothing doing there either. The butchery of the Middle East was on and it's still one of the most tumultuous regions on earth today. And it all began with the scam that was the Sykes-Picot Agreement. Aside from Heathers, I don't think we've had another scam that was so monumentally damaging to a people. Lawrence was mortified by this deception till his dying day when he went flying off a motorbike. When he was invited to collect a DSO from George V, he asked for a meeting with the king beforehand and he said he wasn't going to be able to accept his medal as it represented something of which he could never be proud. So much so that he wanted to die, if you believe his writing. I have decided to go off to Damascus, he said, hoping to get killed on the way. We are calling them to fight for us on a lie, and I can't stand it. So there you have it, Lockie, the Sykes-Pico agreement. 
one of the nastiest little scams in history. Yeah, it just feels quite a lot like British foreign policy was to promise the world to everyone and then see what we felt like doing at the end of it. Um, and that's, you know, we, we had a conversation kind of along those lines uh, with regard to Italy. You know, I, I, the Arabs were not the only victims at that time, but but possibly the most severe, yeah. um, severely yeah. treated yeah, ones. They got out of being victors in World War One. But they were quite demanding on the way in, which is why they don't get a lot of sympathy. No. Do do, do the Ottoman Empire have any kind of agency in this? Could they have um, taken better care of what should, you know, ostensibly have been their people? Nah. They're fucked. <laughs> They're fucked by 1915 and 16. Absolutely on their arse. They're on their arse long before that, actually. It's not a case of, well, if the Ottoman Empire breaks up, we can all divide it between us. It's When's it happening? I'm looking at my watch now and I've got my eye on Iraq and oil. That's how it is. Yeah, what was it? The oil fields of Mesopotamia and the port of Haifa. Indeed. That's why we wanted south of the line and France wanted north of the line because they were obsessed with Syria being spiritually French. For some fucking reason. Rock of shit to me. Yeah, we once crusaded across it. Therefore, I think of home when I see it. Right, okay then. We're massively attached to Antioch. We are so desperate for that. Yeah, we're so desperate to recall having our arse handed to us all the way across Asia Minor. Yeah. Yeah, um, again, I I almost feel like this is drifting into uh, betrayal of a people on the kind of Heather level. I don't don't feel like it's genocidal, but it's a a pretty callous leaving behind of of people, isn't it? It kicks off the whole of um, the mess in the Middle East that we see today because it just, it's, it tees it up for just more fucking scams and fuck wittery all the way through the 20th century. That yeah, is- I, I guess on that, on that kind of level, it's more, more trouble than it's worth, isn't it? You know, it ends up you know, creating this, this, this cauldron that bubbles to this day and yeah, it's, it's unresolved. I, I'm not, not saying that there wasn't conflict in that part of the world before, uh, the the, the pico agreement, but but still, but it's um, say that an Arab nation might not have done some good. Maybe knows Faisal ended up being king of Iraq, which was a bit of like a crappy consolation prize, and his brother ended up king of Transjordan, I think, which obviously is now Jordan. Uh, but yeah, they got little spoils of the shit no one wanted, basically. Yeah, exactly. It's classic British stuff, isn't it? We're, we'll make you Maharaja of this area that we don't give a fuck about. I'll make you king of this empty cardboard box. Yeah. My driveway. <laughs> oh, by the way, you're doing all our, you're trading with us. That's that's the, that's the, the other deal. <laughs> oh, right. Okay. Lockie's got some stuff to think about. Let's go around the room and see uh, who you would have voted for. I think I really liked Charlie's tonight. Oh. I like that. I love a bit of Royal Skull Tuggery. <laughs> That was a proper shafting. Um, <laughs> totally, it wasn't even like um, an accidental shafting. It was just completely and utterly premeditated. Uh, yeah. which I found quite amusing. Uh, Beth, if you couldn't have yours, who would you go for? Um, I think I'd also go for Charlie as well. Oh. I like for pretty much the same reasons. You said, Alex, you know, who doesn't like a little bit of uh, deathbed 
tomfoolery. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'd go with Charlie for this one today. I did really like Merrin's as well. Are you going for Charlie's because you're coming down this way next weekend and you want cake as well? <laughs> I have no ulterior motives whatsoever. <laughs> cake really is liked, a good motive. I liked Merrin's too. Um, Merrin, who would you go for? Margarine. Yeah. <laughs> does taste yeah, like sorry. Lurp, the, the old Lurpak flora argument does it for me I have always been an advocate of there is no such thing as butter there is just more butter yeah, <laughs> yeah. Butter yeah. Is the answer yeah. butter is the answer to life it's like first thing in the morning eggs and butter everything tastes better with butter <laughs> better with butter yeah mm-hmm. no. genius are you uh, a butter whore as well I, th- I thought the Bashir one was was excellent, but because I went to bat for Heather, I'm going to go with Heather's. Yeah. It is a scam and a half. It's a terrifying and horrible scam. Heather, if you couldn't have yours, which one would you go for? Uh, given that I only heard three, um, probably Charlie's for the minor fact that it was the first one I heard back and I liked it because it was fun <laughs> and the butter one just made me feel depressed slightly and, and hungry I did like Marin's too though yeah Marin's was very well done as well James what about you um I am actually going to go with Marin's because it just was one continuous rolling scam and there were quite some fun scams in there yeah. and it was all for a good reason it definitely deserves at least a couple of votes going around this room. It was wonderful. Chris? Um, this one's going to be really tough for me this week because um, Alina's not here, so I've, I've, I've had to listen <laughs> to her and make a decision. Um, <laughs> um, I, I, really taught, I, I really liked um, your one, although I do uh, feel a certain amount of guilt because it was the Germans that started the war, uh, dragged Turkey in, so I'm going to skip <laughs> over that. Um, I really liked Heather's. That was really moving, but... If there's one thing that I, I I enjoy as much as I love Germany is people who screw over the French. So <laughs> screwing vast amounts of money out of the French for for our own gain. I'm going with Charlie just for that because <laughs> it makes the French look stupid and we take all their money. <laughs> so it's good a reason, isn't it? That's a good uh, Lockie, what have you decided? Oh, oh, I haven't. I haven't oh, done my vote. Charlie, go on. I was disenfranchised. Um, <laughs> is it butter? So, yeah, well, yeah, it's a tie between Patton's rubber tanks and uh, it's got to be diet culture and margarine because I've been personally scammed by that one. Yeah. Um, do you use, what do you use in your bakes if you're not using butter? Well, I mean, this this is the thing. Margarine has come on. It has come on a long way. There are better ones than others in the same way as there's better butter than others. So you can you can get some good stuff. Are you convinced? I, I'm, I know that there's better margarines nowadays, put it that way. But, not uh, as good as butter, though. Not as good as butter. Gag on my stick than eat them is what you're saying, right? Um, <laughs> I, I feel like um, the standard has been astonishingly high this week. Because I, I, there's normally a few that I just sort of bat aside when I'm when I'm judging as being nonsense. But actually, generalist no. one, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, funnily enough, no. <laughs> um, uh, but actually, no. I think it's all been excellent, um, and so well done to to you all. Um, I think there's a, there's a few that kind of not not disqualify themselves, but maybe I put into a different category, and and still really kind of well done. So uh, I think James, I sort of mentioned, I maybe put put yours into a different category. I really liked it, but it's you know, yeah. I think it's a it's a different kind of 
you know, kind of mistaken or from some kind of interpretation. And, and I think kind of Heather and Alex probably fit into that category um, as well, because I think um, you're talking about something a, a bit kind of more sinister. I, it, it, it's certainly in Heather's. You want something um, stupid case. and hilarious for a pub, don't you? So kind of, yeah. I like I like Chris's. Um, I think that was stupid and hilarious. But <laughs> as I'll kind of mention, there's there's something kind of else at work uh, there. Uh, and Josh, I'm afraid I've got no sympathy with big diamond companies. So fuck them. Uh, I'm with the scammers. Um, oh sure, that sure. That's that's surely that's why you choose it then. There, right? <laughs> well, kind of. Well, kind of. I've got I've got a top I've got a top three. Um, in in third place, um, I've got. Merrin actually and it's kind of it, it, I think there's kind of almost more at stake really um, than simply a bit of a cynical scam um, I'm, I'm going to either going to have some fun with this or I'm going to rinse some people um, I think this is kind of world changing and actually kind of Chris I think in, in, in your presentation I think fighting for your country is part of that um, as well all right uh, in second place Charlie royal scamming I think is brilliant um, and a total rinse of the French king is great, but in first place, it's margarine. Fuck those guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I was shitting myself thinking, oh, you've done all this serious stuff. No, that's, that's totally what a scam is. I'm, 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 I'm all here for that. <laughs> She's having a hot flush. Well done, Beth. Never that short when we're in here. Uh, we're probably going to be hanging around for quite some time to come as well. Uh, we will be back next month with, uh, I've already decided, we're going to do history's stupidest invention. Oh. Marjorie! Marjorie! Go for the double, back-to-back wins. Yeah. So, uh, if you would like to see how Chris manages to shoehorn the German Navy into <laughs> that, uh, then join us next time. But until then, uh, carry on enjoying Boaty Week. There's more to come this weekend before we reduce down to three shows a week next week. So we hope you'll stick with us for that. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.